0: It's episode 42 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the show is Kevin M. Hoffman. He's the vice president of design at Capital One and the author of a brand new book called Meeting Design. We're talking today about applying the design process to the meetings we have every day, how to evaluate them, improve them, and mercifully kill them when they need to go. Kevin, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. I would imagine that you just got back from Chicago. Uh,
1: no. Oh yeah. Yeah. For the IA summit. I did. I, yeah, that's right. I host a party there every year. I think this is the ninth year I've hosted the party. Um, it's like the Saturday night. Uh, there's two parties every Saturday at the IA conference, formerly the IA summit. Oh, oh, it's Um, changed.
0: Rebranded. Yeah,
1: It just changed. Uh, as of next year. But anyway, there's a party for people who like to play board games and card games, and then there's a really loud party that I host that for people <laughs> who like to sing and uh, get on stage and make fools of themselves or look amazing. Really, is is what they like. That's to do. great. That's awesome.
0: But, I information architecture. It has been a while for me to be honest, um, uh, since I have been like in those circles at all. Like that was very uh, kind of key to the forming of the. Um, the consulting company Adaptive Path uh, that I started with a bunch of uh, co-founders years ago. We did a yeah. lot of information, architecture work and stuff like that. Uh, but I think the last time I put it at the IA Summit was, I don't know, like 14, 15 years ago. It's been a while. Um, I went- yeah,
1: this is, I think this is the next year will be the 20th IA Summit. So wow. you were like in the in the uh, nascent stages. And yeah. it's, uh, I don't know, it's just a, it, as far as conferences go, it's definitely a, a unique and really Really, really closely knit, but also very welcoming community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it tends to sustain itself that way.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a story from my, uh, f- I went to the Information Architecture Summit in uh, in uh, Montreal. Uh, I don't know when that was, but there were piles and piles of snow everywhere and uh, had a great time. Do you remember when that was?
1: I wasn't at that one, oh, but wow. I would imagine it was probably in the latter half of the of the 2000s like 2005 2006.
0: Yeah, I think so I think so and um, I remember walking home from some party it was very late and uh, uh, walking along with somebody and we had the uh, terrible idea to go get a nightcap uh, and and pop into this bar I mean it was like early the next morning so you know we go in and we, we found this bar that was downstairs like in a basement we go down in there and order some drinks and I turn to the person that I'm with and I look over their shoulder and I see kind of, kind of moving through the air over a pool table, one of the bar stools kind of flying (laughs) through the air and comes crashing down on top of this other guy who like leaps up off the ground with his pool cue and starts swinging at, at these other dudes. And in an instant... It is like a, like an old Western, you know, saloon scene. (laughs) Like the guys are throwing each other out windows and, and, but, but seriously, like punching each other in the face. And I like, and I turned to the bartender who now has like a baseball bat in one hand and a telephone receiver in the other hand. (laughs) And is like, get behind the bar. (laughs) So me and my friend get behind the bar. And in, uh, uh, in just a couple of minutes, this like, and this is all going on, there are more police in this bar than I thought were in Canada. Uh, and they like clean everybody out when everybody goes. There's like pools of blood on the floor and everything. And then we sat down and we had our drink and talked about, I think, uh, faceted taxonomies and navigation systems. <laughs> so that's my that's my information architecture story. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it's pretty much the same. Still, that's it. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's what your party is like with the singing and the
1: yeah, yeah, and the brawls. Now, my um, my first IA summit was in Phoenix. I think it was 2011 or 2010. And, um, I was invited to host this party that I still host, but at the, at that time it was, um, it was a surprise birthday party for Richard Saul Werman.
0: Oh yeah, sure.
1: Uh, I think it was his 80th birthday or let, let's say 70th. I'm not, I'm not sure. 80th feels a little North yeah. of, uh, of what, what he would be. But, um, but anyway, it was fun to basically, you know, do a big karaoke party, uh, and then sing "Happy Birthday" to to Richard Saul Orman after his keynote. That was that's, funny.
0: That's cool. Founder of TED, among many many other things. But um, yeah,
1: yeah. Founder of TED, uh, credited with uh, creating the term "information architecture," and uh, I think he still teaches at Yale. Mm. But I'm not. I'm not 100 on that one.
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I remember. I had uh, I have his book, big coffee table book called the "Information Architectures," I think, or something like that. From so yeah, way, yeah. way 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 back. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah nice. Cool. Uh, speaking of books, you wrote one.
1: Yes, I did. I wrote it over the last two and a half years or so. And um, Congratulations. Been, thank you. Uh, it's been something I've been thinking about and researching and experimenting with and, and occasionally writing about or speaking about yeah. for, I want to say, at least eight or nine years. Um, and uh, I made a lot of r- uh, good friends along the way. And um, there was this nice... Snowball of ideas and perspective, and and um, uh, just different lenses on thinking about just thinking about this thing that we all deal with,
0: yeah.
1: um, and that we often scapegoat, but don't really. I, I think in traditional organizations and even in some untraditional organizations and startups and design uh, centered organizations and uh, government organizations, we don't apply. What I would call design thinking or design process to the way we spend our time with other people
0: when I saw the you announced the book I got very excited and then when I got a copy and read the book I just I absolutely loved it and I have to say with, with a deep and genuine confirmation bias. Like everything that I believe to be true was written in the book and it made me very, very happy. So, um, I'm not sure how objective I can be in our conversation. Uh, but you think about it very much the way I do and I, and that's really exciting. I really like it. And I like, I mean, even from the first sentence, how well do the meetings we have every day do their intended job? And I love the use of the word job. Um, and I used to say this all the time, uh, when I was running type kit and say like meetings are work. And we just, that was like a mantra we had, like meetings are work. We're here to get stuff done. The time we have together, it's the most valuable time we have. Let's make the most of it and then get you back to doing your contributions. But while we're together, we're going to do work. And it and that's just this, like this, uh, this theme that's running through the whole book. So I just, I really appreciate that.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And honestly, I think, um, you know, there, there, there is a long running culture Of people who think this way. Um, My book is one of, you know, a handful of books that have come out over the years going back to the 1970s, uh, where people kind of try to, and successfully have put different frameworks of thinking against the way we spend time in in groups. And um, I'm just happy to contribute to that ongoing, hopefully expanding awareness of thinking about it this way and not thinking about it in a kind of fear response way or kind of ambiguity response way where we're like, Oh, we don't know what's going on. A meeting is what we, we use to fix that. And and I think that's not the right response.
0: Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so you do believe that a meeting is something that can in fact be designed and that, uh, that, that the design process can make it more useful and compelling.
1: Yeah. At the risk of alienating, uh, at the risk of alienating folks, I saw Jared Spool speak uh, this past weekend, and he taught. He, he stated, and I think he stated this on Twitter, that he believes everyone is a designer to some to some capacity. Hmm. Not everyone is a good designer. Uh, not everyone might even be a trained designer, but everyone has the capacity to design things. And uh, I think meetings are something that we have a lot of tools that helps us that, that help us design them. Um, and those tools have a lot of biases implicit in them, but often we, we turn off our intentional thinking when, and we turn on, you know, very much rote thinking like, oh, this is the, the default amount of time I can use. This is the, the way that I write a subject. This is the way that I engage an audience. You know, it's all it, it, I think it's been kind of the software has almost removed our capacity for intent. One thing that I used to do early in my career is I would actually like have a conversation in the meeting invite and just write something like, hey, I can't wait to talk about this. Um, this topic is really interesting to me. And I think that uh, I'm really interested to see what you have to say about this as a way of initiating a conversation and, and setting it apart from mm-hmm. there's a flurry of other invites. That's just one teeny little example of how to introduce intention yeah, uh, into the ask of a meeting. And then the meeting itself is, I think, where a lot of the potential and a lot of the challenges lie.
0: So wh- why don't you talk a little bit about just the basic framework that you use to approach this idea that we are going to spend a group of us uh, are going to spend, uh, let's say, 60 minutes together. And... um and there's any level of, of success that could come out of this of outcomes and things like that. Um, but you've got, you've got a, a relatively specific framework for, um, for kind of evaluating whether it's, you know, uh, doing the work before to make sure the meeting is going to be valuable. Can you talk about that? Yeah. that? Uh,
1: there's a couple of different frameworks in the book. Um, the first one is this idea that you can apply the traditional design thinking sequence to meetings let's say meetings in a series. So if that hour meeting is a part of uh, an ongoing team, uh, series of meetings, whether it's a a monthly planning meeting or or a part of an agile ritual or whatever, the the four step process is first of all, thinking about the outcomes that that meeting is intended to, to support. So if we think about a level of Zoom, we're not thinking about the outcomes of that specific hour, we're thinking about the outcomes that exist in reality, or in our project work, or however you conceive of that scale, uh, that that meeting is intended to serve. Mm. So once you have those outcomes, you want to ask the question, well, how would we measure if those outcomes were existing, or if they're improving? Um, And I think a lot of people don't ask that question, in my experience, Uh, in the 25-ish years I've been working, people will say, well, we want to make sure we're focused on this outcome but they won't actually ask the measurement question. Right. So once you have that measure and you have, you have an outcome, you have a measure. The second step is to, to, to come up with hypotheses about what kind of meaning would serve that outcome and, and, and increase that measure or, or give you the presence of, of the thing you're looking for. And in design, you know, we call this kind of the, the prototyping stage Right. where we're prototyping ideas and how that, butts up against what we think of traditionally as meetings is that meetings may be faster than anything else in business become ceremonial. Um, You know, once, either either because of a a past success bias or because of a a manager bias, as soon as we have like the idea that this this is the sequence of our agenda in this ritual meeting that we have, this is how we do it, Uh, people come into the organization they have to adapt to how we do it (laughs) like that becomes that becomes like a permanent way of thinking and the prototype concept is like you should only be very loosely connected to that that permanence interesting you should be more tied to the outcome to the measure and be aware of how you could modify the meeting experience to to engineer it to have better or or increase the
0: outcome let me let me ask you about that because i love those words ceremony and ritual um yeah but but i like them in like on both sides of the uh, of the coin right like in a very negative way i have been subject to so many ceremonial meetings where the the agenda of the meeting is we're all going to sit and listen to this person with more power over us speak and mm-hmm. right and it is ostensibly like this is the dissemination of information through the hierarchy of the organization um uh, but those are awful right they can, <laughs> typically can be very awful but yeah. i also have a um a, a bunch of beliefs around the importance of ritual and ceremony in the development of culture in an organization and and and, and that was something i thought very hard about when we were doing our startup um, as, as a way of like, this is, this is us modeling how we're going to behave. And I know you have this sort of continuum And later on, uh, we'll talk more about this in facilitation between scripted and improv. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, we had some very specific meetings, a daily standup, for example, um, very loosely kind of defined as a standup, but a daily meeting for the entire company, um, that would, uh, that was ex- extraordinarily scripted. Um, and continuously evolving because I also realized like every time, and this is uh, to to be fair, a company that started with four people, um, and got up, uh, to around 35, 40 people, uh, before the acquisition. But every time we added five people, the whole meeting broke, right? And it was very obvious it broke and it was a waste of people's time and it started getting too long and things like that. But there was a ritual around it that was super important. So I'm wondering, you know, that kind of dichotomy there, but between that, uh, what you think about that?
1: Well, so a couple of things come to mind. First of all, I love the, the, the story about, uh, scale, like right. thinking right. about the relationship between the constraint of scale of size and the goal of just creating alignment in a conversation in real time.
0: Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a
1: part of, there's a part of uh, chapter three where I talk about the, how, how that scale affects conversations and how to manage for that scale. Um, but the other thing I want to, I, I want to kind of reflect on, I don't want to convey the idea that ceremony and ritual are inherently bad. Right. In fact, I think one of the, the central tenets of the book, hopefully if people get it uh, the way I intended it. And the, one of the great challenges of life is you try to communicate something and, You intend a particular message and it's received in different ways based on, you know, the fact that we all have different brains. But one of the central things I hope people get is that a meeting, uh, a ceremony, a ritual is a tool. And a tool is not inherently good or bad. The application of a tool is good or bad based on what the effectiveness of that tool is supposed to be. So in your story about creating this ritual and understanding the really powerful relationship between ritual and uh, organizational culture, which is something I talk about in chapter six, Mm. being aware of how you can adapt to a culture, being aware of how you can influence a culture and ultimately, you know, create or change culture if, if the culture isn't what you want it to be through meetings, right? Being aware of that involves a certain presence and awareness of intent that the ritual can erode unless somebody has that in mind, unless somebody is tasked with that that uh, that with that job. Um, I, I spoke with uh, Leslie Jensen Inman, who founded a, kind of a startups design school in Chattanooga. And Leslie talked about the same thing, that she realized she was creating this culture from scratch and she wanted to be very intentional in the way that people had permission To speak in meetings and the meetings were fluid and the meetings, um, certain meetings would be non-negotiable based on their intent. Hmm. Uh, And now all of that kind of created an experience in the workplace that was very aligned to the values of the organization, but also um, very human centered. And uh, you know, gave people the space to get the work done they wanted to do, both in and out of meetings.
0: Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that constraint a little bit, and I'll use that that start uh, that stand up meeting that we had as as an example. I um, uh, I, I love the the idea of uh, scale as the. Constraint that every meeting has, right? Like the just the size of it and the uh, and how that defines the type of meeting almost inherently. Um, I would, I mean, most meetings are kind of arbitrarily also uh, confined by time that we just pick a time. Um, And for us, it was a uh, twenty minutes um, that we could disseminate the information that people needed each morning in twenty minutes. And if it got longer than that, it was an indication of something having to change. And and generally, what that meant was there were more people speaking. And so we went longer uh, because the meeting was getting bigger. So then we would adapt to that. we did a couple of things. One was the, just the rigorousness of the script that we used for this meeting. So it became very (laughs) ritualistic, like the same things in the same order every time. Mm -hmm. And then um, it came to the point where no, like, When we had six of us or eight of us, we'd go around the table. You know, when we have 22 of us, we can't do that anymore. There's just no more time. So that turned into something that proved to be incredibly valuable, which was like, okay, we're going to have representatives from each group, uh, give in the report, meaning they have to do work before the meeting to collect that and synthesize it and present it and stuff like that. And anyway, those are just a couple of examples of, I I thought, Trying to go through an evolutionary process, an iterative process, like you talk about, like what's not working, how do we fix it, how do we prototype that, test it, and implement it?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. Oh, let me turn that off. Sorry, we'll, uh, there we go. No problem.
0: We, we can edit that right out.
1: Yeah, or we could leave it in and then it'll be more real.
0: Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> this is real life. This, <laughs> yeah, uh, I love the
1: story. It's funny that you you talk about the evolution at Typekit. Uh, Way back when I first started talking about meetings, um, probably 13, I think maybe 12 or 13 years ago, uh, I used to work with Jason Santamaria before he was at Typekit. Uh, Briefly, I worked with him uh, under Jeffrey Zellman's Happy Cog. Right. And, um, you know, after he went to Typekit, and I first started talking about this topic. I interviewed Jason just to learn about, like, I was just trying to learn about meeting culture in different organizations. And at that time, Typekit, I would have characterized as a startup. And um, he talked about how, in a sense, Typekit was founded in a meeting that you, Greg, and and uh, your brother, Greg, and yeah. and Jason, and, and maybe one other person, I'm not sure, Um Maybe Brian Mason yeah, uh, just had a meeting where you decided to fly to the same location and spent a day kind of conceiving of what this thing could be um, and that it was born in a sense out of a meeting. And it's really nice just to hear, you know, something that depending, I don't think it's born only out of a meeting, but a meeting was necessary for its birth and how through its life and acquisition and continued existence, um, That 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 culture uh, and that specific meaning that you're talking about, really, uh, I I would imagine and I'm asking you, you know, when you think about your time with Typekit and you think about uh, its growth and and kind of how you made a thing, uh, not necessarily the tool, but uh, the the software, but the kind of became a part of and depended on, you know, ultimately, uh, 35 or 40, you said around acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. So so you created this this experience for these people that allowed them to kind of do the work they wanted to do. And knowing that intentionality in the meetings was a part of that, the evolution of that thing and the growth of that thing. I think that's a really interesting and important lesson um, for companies like my company. So, you know, at Capital One, we have 50,000 people (laughs) and. I would say, in the seven months that I've worked there, I started last September. Um, it is very much a meeting culture. The deck is the thing that uh, is the one thing that rules them all, like uh, you know meetings are are essentially conceived of as decks, as slide decks, and slide decks are are conceived of as as the source of truth right uh, over time. And it's a very, in my opinion, it's a challenging and, in times, very dangerous way to uh, create knowledge and disseminate knowledge. It's a very um, ephemeral way. And uh, when I was uh, talking to Capital One, at first, you know, they said, "Well, Capital One is like a culture of a million startups. There's all these kind of, there's all these groups that form and 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 uh, dissolve." based around where there's momentum and energy and that's definitely a big part of the culture there but what that manifests in with regards to meeting culture is there's kind of a rapid adoption and abandonment of rituals um, you know which i think is both a, a great thing and a problem depending on how you measure it and, and what you're trying to accomplish so um, one of the things that i'm trying to do uh, in my design team I, I work in the card design organization I support about 85 designers uh, with another vice president named Heather Winkle and uh, a couple other folks on our leadership team. What we try to do is at a quarterly basis for 85 people, what are the experiments that I can run with our meeting rituals? We have um, teams. We have people in Chicago. We have people in San Francisco. We have people in uh, our main groups of people are in Richmond and Washington, D.C., And then we have a smattering of people that are all over the place. You know, how do we create uh, gatherings that that both make the space for people to learn and apply and synthesize in those gatherings, um, but also, you know, get out of the way of what ultimately is 15 different agile team rituals um, within our 85 designers. There are 15-ish teams they're all different in little ways. They all have different business partners that conduct their rituals in different ways. So we want to kind of give them the value that they need as a larger design org, but get out of their way. And frankly, it's probably um, one of the favorite things about my job right now is that I've been given the, the task of kind of exploring that and, and keeping it fresh and keeping it living and not falling into ritual. There were two or three big meetings that were standing rituals when I joined that immediately I was like, why is this here? What is it doing? Um, And if the answer is, I don't know, then we would kill it with fire. Um, (laughs) But if the answer is, we think it's supposed to do this. One of my favorites is, is there was a meeting we had every month or sorry, every week for all 85 of us uh, via Skype. And Um, I asked uh, a lot of the senior leadership and and the the people who designed the meeting, you know, what's it supposed to do? Like, what happens in our organization that wouldn't happen without this meeting? And I got ultimately 15, I think, different answers, um, maybe roughly across three or four different themes. But it was depending on your lens and specifically depending on your position in the hierarchy of the organization, you saw the meeting as serving a very different purpose. The thing I took from that, and the thing I'd want to share with you and, and your listeners, is this idea that in larger organizations and large teams, when you have a hierarchy, it's re- if you're thinking about human centered meetings, meetings that are, are designed to support people's uh, fulfillment in their work or growth in their work or, or whatever metric you're looking for, sometimes it makes sense to start with. The people who are the most frontline, the people who are what I would call our real designers, the the ones that are actually solving uh, problems with our business partners for our customers. Think about how the meetings serve them first um, and worry less or later on about how meetings, the larger ones, serve the leadership. You know, when you talked about – kind of bad rituals and this idea that you have this massive meeting where leadership just kind of passes down, uh, you know, strategic awareness right. or, or big budget changes or whatever. There are times that has to happen, but in the ritual meetings that we have, I, I would hypothesize this isn't in the book, but it may be in the future. This is something that someone might like to explore. If I don't, I would hypothesize that meetings that are more engineered for your, your lower layers of your organization in a large organization, the more effective and concise those meetings will be in the less time they will take. Yeah. I don't I've, know if
0: it's true. Yeah. That's but interesting. I'm it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's take a little break. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about facilitation. Hey, are you a freelancer? Then you know how important it is to make smart decisions for your business. Our friends at FreshBooks can save you up to 192 hours with their cloud accounting software for freelancers that's ridiculously easy to use. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. Let me give you just two examples of how they do this. First, FreshBook automates late payment email reminders, so you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working your magic. Uh, here's another one. With the new projects feature, you can share files and messages with your clients, contractors, and employees. You can see how quickly things happen when all of your conversations live in one place. So, if you're listening to this and you're not using FreshBooks yet, now is the time to try it. FreshBooks are offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of Presentable. No credit card is required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com presentable and enter presentable in how did you hear about us section. We thank FreshBooks for their support of this show and for all of Relay FM. All right, so this is um, a podcast, kind of by uh, or about design, kind of for designers. We talk uh, a lot about how we do our work, and I think facilitation is is one of the sort of um, underpinnings of how design successfully gets kind of communicated and implemented and, and things like that. Meaning that when we all sit down to make decisions about the product and the prioritizations and how the the, uh, expression of each feature is going to be realized, it is often falls on the shoulders of the designers to lead that conversation. Uh, Or if it's not often would benefit if it were, what do you think about all that?
1: I think facilitation. I mean, this is obviously stuff I talk about in the book. Um, the, The first thing I want to say about facilitation is I think there is a great subculture in, in the design community of facilitation geeks. Yeah, People who geek out about the, the difference if, if, if uh, interaction design is ultimately human-to-human design mediated by technology, usually uh, sometimes in the form of screens, sometimes not. Facilitation is this really pure form of interaction design because you're eliminating any, potentially, depending on if it's, I mean, in a virtual meeting, it's there's a technology mediating human-to-human interaction. But, you know, in a room, as a facilitator, uh, if you're kind of executing and, and monitoring and serving a living agenda, you're really designing interaction between human beings um, in, in a very real-time way. And, but both in advance of that conversation, but, but throughout the conversation as well. And there's a, there's, there's a good, I would say do, uh, a couple dozen friends I've made in the design community by just like us realizing, Oh, you, you're into facilitation. Oh man. You know, I love this. <laughs> book. I, I love uh, this guy, Michael Doyle, who wrote this book in the seventies or, um, uh, have you read, you know, Lenny Lynn's book, uh, the facilitator's guide to participatory decision-making, which is the best book with the worst title of all time, um, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, mouthful, but, but anyway, I think there's this great geekiness in design about, about facilitation and the way you've seen that there's, I think there's two ways you've seen that manifest in the last 10 to 15 years. One is maybe three big ways. The first one is post-it notes. I think if, if, if you think about how many conference talks and articles and, and uh, post-it note exercises there are, this is fundamentally a facilitation framework. You know, you, you're, you're essentially creating a constraint around length of content, what fits on a note. You're creating physical uh, manifestations of ideas using notes, and you're manipulating those ideas as a group. So you know post-it notes fun- I think fundamentally changed um, the way that designers relate to meetings mm-hmm. uh, and st- had them start thinking about them as uh, themselves as facilitators. The second thing I think is this concept of visual facilitation and uh, sketch facilitation. Uh, in my research, I would say a lot of that is credited to David Sibbett. Uh, David Sivet is in San Francisco. He runs a consultancy called The Grove Consultants International. Uh, the story I like about David uh, as a visual facilitator is back in the early 80s, David facilitated a, kind of a, a workshop or a gathering. I'm not sure exactly what the team was, but at, at Apple uh, when Steve Jobs was there the first time before he left and came back. Mm-hmm. And that workshop that, that he facilitated, I think he used something called, uh, I can't remember what the, the method was, but it was like a team visioning exercise that he's used for probably 25 or 30 years. And what came out of that conversation was this thing called the Knowledge Navigator, Oh yeah. which was this kind of concept video that Apple used internally to promote um, uh, to promote the idea of the future of computing. And it was like this personal assistant slash touchscreen
0: thing. Yeah, it's a be, it was basically an iPad with Siri on it, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it manifested iPad ultimately, and in, in Siri at the at the end of the day. Right. Um, and I, I I love the idea that those things, which are now a huge part of both uh, what we think of as great design and a huge part of normal everyday life for for a lot of people, um, came out of this. Visual faci- visually facilitated workshop yeah um, on, on some level so you have post-it notes you have visual facilitation and then I think the third thing and I'm trying to remember what it was I should have written it, I should have written it down but but the third thing I would say is es- essentially this idea that the facilitator is a job that exists outside of um, other jobs that we have in our Organization is worth calling out right. and saying. Although you might be the manager of our team, uh, we for this meeting or this workshop or this uh, you know uh, standing meeting that we have, we are going to designate a facilitator, and that may or may not be the same as the person who manages the team. Right. And furthermore, it's usually better if it isn't the same person, or if it's always a different person. And it's a skill that we nurture, you know, um, that that there are a set of uh, skills using post-it notes, sketch facilitation, understanding conversational dynamics, um, uh, building alignment, that those skills are a skill in our organization, which we value as much as we value the ability to work in uh, sketch or Photoshop or whatever. Right. You know, that's the third thing is that facilitation is a job. Uh, and it's a job that any, it's a muscle that anybody can develop. Um, but it's one that you need to intentionally say, okay, you're going to be the one to develop that muscle or we're all going to develop that muscle and think about how we apply that muscle across our meetings.
0: Yeah. And how we take turns and things like that. You know, I have one question about that though. Um, which is that like my understanding of, of of good facilitation implies some neutrality. Right. That, that, that that is like, because one of the fundamentals of good facilitation is trust and that everybody there kind of trusts that their point will get across that their point will be taken, that the, that they're not being manipulated by this facilitator to get everybody to go in some other direction and things like that. Yet when you're with your team and you for uh, ostensibly would have some kind of point of view, um, I don't know, it gets a little murky. What do you, what do you think of that?
1: So there are a couple of things. I, I can't remember where I heard this concept, but there's a, a there's a management concept of how you move from thinking about your team in terms of the benefit of uh, choices you're making directly to yourself and your team to the benefit your team provides uh, to either your customers or your business partners or ultimately you lens up to the world, you know. Um, I think the more, this is something that I haven't, you know, I'm puzzling on this a little bit. I think the more that you think about the universal us, the easier it is for you to extract your own biases, or at least put them on pause when you're facilitating a conversation. Remember that as a facilitator, you're in service of that conversation, becoming whatever it needs to become. Mm. And then when the conversation is over, hitting pause, hitting play rather on your biases as a designer invested in outcomes and mating the two essentially. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when I think about like agency teams that I've, that I've been a part of, that's something that we usually have to have a conversation around before meeting with a client or or a partner saying, what are the biases that we believe that we have? You know, what are the things that we think are going to affect our own uh you know how we're going to lean in this conversation and how do we hit pause on those before we have the conversation and who is the best person to do that um you know i there have been many times over the years where you know i have called out someone or myself and said you know i'm not going to be the best person to facilitate this conversation because i know i'm too invested in it and i think just seeing that example in an organization is enough for other people to kind of catch on and say, you know what, Uh, how do I feel about this thing? I really feel strongly. And the wonderful thing about that, if you you get in the practice of asking that question, is you're actually moving your best assets into a position of contribution in the meeting, which would be better for them than facilitating anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know, so you're going to have a more kind of a more intense, um, a more productive conversation by taking the people in your your group and putting them in the position of having an opinion um, and trying to find out who is the person who can either suspend or simply not have that opinion for the facilitation
0: of a discussion. Interesting, Yeah. 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 And you're talking about really changing the question from kind of, what do you think to how do you feel? What are your motivations? Stuff like that. You talk about being a good facilitator is all about the way in which you frame the questions to elicit the appropriate responses to, to kind of avoid a lot of that confrontational stuff that can happen in those meetings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I talk a little bit about Edgar Schein in the book. Um, Edgar Schein has a methodology for, for building questions that um, I adapt to meetings. He uses it to, he, he uses it in, in kind of the definition of organizational culture. He did, he's done a lot of really interesting stuff on uh, business culture and org culture. Um, but knowing what kind of question you're asking, if you're asking about an emotion, if you're asking about a system, if you're asking about a motivation, um, you know, and there's a couple others as well. Um, but, but being able to say, okay, what is it we want to learn? Okay, we believe that's what we want to learn then really what are we asking about? Are we asking about actions that people will take? Are we asking about uh, what motivates them to take those actions and totally rewriting your questions and thinking of thinking of your questions as evolving drafts
0: like your meets? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I want to get back a little bit into this like visual facilitation and, and, um, and just the importance of, of sort of like real time artifact creation, I guess is one kind of technical way to put it. I was, I had this meeting, it was not even meeting, it was a conversation really, but meeting with a CEO of a company recently. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it was a meeting because we were sitting in a conference room and there was the table in between us and, and stuff like that. Uh, and just having a little bit of small talk beforehand, uh, he asked me where I live, and I told him. And he's like, "Oh, hey, my mom lives over there." And he stood up and grabbed a whiteboard and drew a little map on the on the whiteboard. And he's <laughs> like, "Here's the tube stop, and like, you know, this coffee place. Like, she lives right over here." I'm like, "I know exactly where that is." And and it's just a little anecdote, but it reminded me just the importance of like, let me stand up and draw a picture to see if I understand what you're saying, and yeah. and how that had actually been this like meeting hack I had when I worked at Adobe that I would like, when I would come into any, especially if it was meetings with a bunch of executives and I was the only kind of person representing design, but I would come into those meetings and grab a white, uh, a marker from the whiteboard and go sit down at the table and like, and then I had it there with me and I knew like at any minute I could jump up and draw because as soon as I started drawing, I always found it like, Oh, this is my meeting now. (laughs) I have, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's kind of a hack and stuff, but the, but the, the bigger issue, which I, which I kind of see you touching on all the time here in the book, is this idea of of um, the inability of people to sort of keep in their short-term memory what we're deciding and what we're talking about and what we've agreed uh, and, and, and going in kind of two directions. One, getting up and drawing pictures of what we mean and saying this or that, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. and the thing that we also also another sort of aspect of what we did in the typekit meetings which is like to have something on the screen that is in real time recording everything. So we yeah. would we would uh eventually we moved from a text file into a Trello board had all of our projects and a person whose sole job in the meeting was to be in real time updating in front of everybody that Trello board with decisions that were making and um questions that had to be answered and stuff like that and found that super super valuable as well. So
1: Yeah, totally. I mean there's so many there's there's so many things that you touched upon that I'm just like I find that I geek out about and 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 find really interesting about human beings in this context. One is that this idea of the marker as a security blanket, which <laughs> yeah which I had put in the book, uh but I love that i that metaphor that uh one thing I talk about in the book is the idea that if you feel like a, there's a power differential in the room that is affecting the direction of the conversation and you are on the, the receiving end of that power differential, or you feel like you don't have that power, um, or you feel you're at a disadvantage that the act of, uh, there's nothing confrontational. There's nothing controversial about the act of writing or sketching on a whiteboard that if you choose to do that, um, you're actually going to pull the conversation towards the whiteboard uh-huh. in a way that um, would not exist without that record, without that living, ongoing record. And um, you you'll find yourself as you're writing. Just the, I think there there's a lot of um, you know uh, document documentation and data around the relationship between the act of writing and our memory. Yeah, that you know how we take notes affects you know, for, for a certain generation, like writing versus typing. And there's lots of stuff there, but writing in a way that a group can see you're thinking about your own choices and your word choices. You're not going to write everything. Everyone says, if you do that, no one's going to read it. And you're going to spend all of your, your, your cognitive energy trying to transcribe what you want to do is kind of, put that cognitive energy into an evaluation mode. Like of the last five things that were said, what is the most meaningful piece of that? Write what you think that is on the board or draw it as the case may be. And then watch how people react to that. If, If you're in a position of, 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 of being low on a totem pole, you know, it's almost better if you get it wrong because then the meeting goes into an overdrive of clarification, yeah. uh, which which I love. So that's that's one thing I love. Um, another thing, again, thinking about the last uh, in, t- in terms of my career, like while I've been doing this stuff, which has been you know twenty five years or so, people like Dan Rome, people like Dave Gray, people like Sonny Brown, uh, they have all kind of been chipping away at clarifying. This elephant, you know, different sides of this elephant, which is the basic idea that the way our brains work, that visualization using pictures, using simple uh, visual illustrations, uh, whether it's, you know, stick figures or flow diagrams or a map uh, in the case of your your conversation with that CEO. Mm, Yeah, um, whatever it may be. That there's something in our brains that interprets and makes meaning in a different way than the way we make meaning out of words that we hear. And that there's this really powerful and and higher plane of understanding that we reach when we combine those in in intentional ways. So I think this practice of visualizing that you see in uh, books like Back of the Napkin and uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Dave Gray's visual vocabulary and uh-huh. Sonny Brown's the Doodle Revolution. Like what you're seeing in those spaces, is there's this kind of revolution happening in all these different places around the relationship between visualizing things or whatever. And the further that goes, the better off we all are in terms of us agreeing on things. Right. And uh, you know, I know you're not front lines right now, but I think, I think alignment and agreement is, I, I, I don't, I'm not a politically minded person. I, I certainly have my opinions. I'm not a highly active in the political sphere, but um, I definitely think that at least agreeing on reality, uh, which seems to be a challenge uh, these days, um, agreeing on reality, whatever tools we have to do that are really important. Yeah. And there's no tool that we shouldn't try. Um, and this particular tool, you know, it's definitely I, I love how it's become a part of uh, kind of for many people. It's become a, a part of uh, regular operations. What my, my hope in including some of this in the book was just to say, hey, if you don't know about this, here's how you get into this. Here's what you read. Here's here's some some basics that you can start with. But then if you want to get into if this becomes your, your calling, you know, this is where you should uh, start um, because it's a small part of the larger meeting, uh, the larger meeting systems that, that I think you can think about. But it's a big one.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you like you, you mentioned sort of where I am with what I'm doing with my career right now uh, has brought me into a whole new realm of meetings, which are the board meetings yeah uh, which i had a little bit of experience with in the past i um i presented at a number of the adobe board meetings which were remarkable you know there's like uh 13 board members in the room and all of them have crazy different agendas and um it was yeah it's phenomenally interesting and i remember like the debriefing that i would get beforehand and uh which part to say to whom and why and what to expect from them and this and try to keep that all in mind while actually going through my <laughs> presentation (laughs) it was insane um but now yeah like uh on the investing side and being part of governance and things like that and and realizing that the more scripted and the more ritualistic those meetings are the less effective they are uh because they're not what a you know founders of companies really need and um and we have been as a team uh, at true ventures thinking a lot about that like how do we bring what you're describing is essentially more emotional intelligence into these um uh into these venues Um, which which can be typically quite aggressive. Um, so much going on under the covers stuff like that. I remember as a founder had very simple board meetings uh, at the time, the early stages of our companies, but essentially there was no new information communicated at the board meeting. I had done all of that in the week before, you know? So, um, so it turned into then I would just like facilitate a strategy meeting and that's what I needed from them. So anyway, um, uh, lots of different, I think like I said, venues for this kind of stuff to be practiced. Interesting.
1: I love, I love the idea of thinking about meetings at the, at the higher levels. And it's something that I occasionally am exposed to, but probably not as much as you are these days and have been in the past. There's this one story I've heard um, and I've seen it in a lot of organizations, but uh, in terms of Johnson and Johnson, I think they, they actually decided to make their board meeting room, I'm trying to remember what the label they used. What they, but they wanted to create an environment for decisions. That was the intent. There was a label for it that I can't exactly remember. But they replaced. They 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 essentially decided on a series of real time data points that they felt were the most relevant, um, and worked with a designer to visualize different um, relationships between those data points, hmm. so, so that in their board meeting. There, were, there was this constant flow of visualization of real-time relationships between different data points that affected the company. Wow. In their board meeting, that was a constant part of the conversation. So rather than um, you know, it, it, the flow of information being through a human being making a presentation or what different people believed that they know, there was also this kind of cloud-based knowledge That uh, was a visual part of the conversation. And it was, uh, you know, based on the case study I read, um, you know, it affected the culture of that meeting. And for a board meeting, I would imagine that's a pretty
0: powerful choice to make. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think there's a tremendous amount that designers can learn uh, that would improve their craft and their success. From taking a look at your book, lots of good stuff in there. Thanks for writing it again. Um, no, my pleasure. I will put a link to the book uh, um, in the show notes, link over to your website as well, uh, and to you and Twitter. Anything else you want to plug while, we, while you've got the mic?
1: Oh, I would say, um, you know, uh, Dave Gray and a and, uh, developer in the UK and I actually, we built this thing called Board Thing. and. Uh, you know, it's a visualization tool. It's essentially a, a virtual whiteboard tool. Um, we built it for fun, uh, and uh, if you're interested in uh, experimenting with the visualization of meetings, it's really easy to jump on board thing and try it out.
0: Oh, fantastic uh, I'll Take a look at that for sure. Cool. I love new tools. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a great afternoon. You too. And that's another episode of Presentable.